Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, as well as, well, what didn't. And we talk about it all. In this episode, we are going to start discussing the 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide. Longtime listeners will understand that we spent the 12 days of Christmas 2020 discussing the various Dungeon Master's Guides of all the other editions of D&D. And we did not do the 5th edition because since it is the current edition, we want to give it a deeper dive than even Brandis and I could do in just two episodes. So, we have changed our format a little bit, and we have decided to ask experts in the industry to come on with us and critique the 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide chapter by chapter. And so I am here with my three co-hosts tonight. I am Sam Dillon, and I am here with Brandis Stoddard. Howdy, folks. And with Paige Lightman. Hiya! And with Ben, whose last name I do not know. I'm sorry, Eisler. Ben. Eisler. 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 Okay. I knew that. I'm just impressed that I'm an expert. Yeah, we're experts now. High five. I was say, like, <laughs> okay. And, and, and with Ben Heisler. And so now I will hand it over to our experts. <laughs> so uh, let it be said that fifth edition is our favorite edition of the game? Would we, would we say that? I certainly would. I, it's, it's, it's a good edition. It's a good edition. Certainly. We both like fourth edition a whole hell of a lot. I've uh, enjoyed every edition while, I, while I was playing it mm-hmm. and while it was the current one. And then when the next one came along, I was happy to move to the next one because something had burned me on the one previous. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the cycle, right? It, it sure uh, is. Yeah. So for my for me, I actually enjoy the older editions more. So mm-hmm. basic and first are my my beloveds, right? Sure. But I appreciate fourth and fifth. I don't appreciate third as much, but that's a long story. So we will skip that. Uh, listeners of the show know why. It's not that it's a bad game. It's just that it was during my non-D&D playing time for the yeah. most part. And by the time I saw it again, it had like 50 books already and it's like, no way. Yes. I, appreci- I appreciate fourth edition. I love the game for what it is, right? I appreciate its warts and all, right? I'm a, I was a staunch defender of fourth edition when it was the current edition, even though I'm sort of an original edition player right I, I love the old school editions but yeah. i i understand fourth edition the the design goals it had it hit many of those mm-hmm. and i think fifth edition the design goals it has it, it's hitting many of those mm-hmm. um and so it's a good game so I, I i will agree that it's a good game yeah i fifth edition like i'm gonna say fifth edition is my favorite with the right to change my mind whenever the hell i want Uh, with fourth coming in as a close second and then second, probably third behind that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I am less fond of the first chapter of the DMG in fifth edition than I think I am with any other. So so before we launch all the way into chapter one, I did want us to do a really quick drive by of the introduction uh, okay. Sure. J- just because it it lays out some purposes of the book, mm-hmm. and I I think that might be a bit instructive to the series as a whole. Sure. Um, so 
there's, there's a couple of pieces that I think are are useful to note. Um, the first of those is the second chapter, sorry, second paragraph of the introduction, um, which says the Dungeon Master's Guide assumes that you know the basics of how to play the D and D tabletop role playing game. If you haven't played before, the Dungeons and Dragons starter set is a great starting point for new players and DMs. And so that I think is the book anticipating some of the fact that it doesn't exactly teach DMing quite. It's mm-hmm. kind of saying, well, the, the most basics of how to like express a room description and express round-by-round round action, we put that in the starter set. We're not going to try to rehash it here. Um, so, so I think that's a useful note. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's fascinating that they they set up the book in the order that they do, um, as yeah. discussed under how to use this book, mm-hmm. that they really push world building first. Like the first thing they want you to read is world building. That's where they put it first. Um, and there's plenty of room to question that, but that that was going to be, I think, the, the yeah. initial thrust of our yeah, discussion. Yeah, like that's a. I think that's a really. It's it's an interesting place to start, and there's for all the room there is to disagree. It's important to understand what the writers like had in mind, right? Sure. To to approach the book on its own terms, um, and then they go to well, adventures so and then rules. Right? I, I I also want to point out one thing based on something you said, Brandis, and that yep. is that uh, you know you, you the premise is this book isn't really to teach you how to DM. It's not teaching you the basics or how to DM. None of the Dungeon Master's guides from any of the editions did that. Correct. So right. in that respect, in that respect, this isn't any different. So just pointing out for the audience. Yeah, okay. and like there's a little bit of room to quibble about whether the the fourth edition DMG or either of the DMG twos or some of the second ed uh, blue cover uh, books might have done so. Uh, but we kind of landed on they mostly didn't because um, there there is a certain leap of here's how you narrate right here's how you narrate what's in your head that they assume you can make on your own that based on you know, internet conversations is not a safe assumption mm-hmm. but it, it it I don't think there's any way to say it's not just a core assumption of every DMG ever written. Sure. Uh, and so the last thing I wanted to highlight is the Know Your Players page, uh, page six. Mm-hmm. Um, just because uh, this yeah, is your have... this is your Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering page. Right. And, and that has been there in many of the past several editions. And it's, you know what? The Robin's Laws stuff is a a great way to start thinking about your players because in my mind, being a DM comes with a whole lot of challenge. You got to come with adventure. You got NPC. You got to know how the rules work, blah, 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 blah. But the hardest part about being a DM and the part that is difficult or even nearly impossible to teach is that you are managing a table of players. For sure. The, the social the awareness, yeah. the social awareness to make that go is, is hard. Yeah, it is. It's just hard. 
and the the Robin's laws start breaking that down into bite sized chunks that that many more people can can digest. Now, the interesting thing about this, in contrast to the DMG two of fourth edition and Robin's laws of good game mastering, um, this page sticks to a positive gloss on all of the yep. player motivations. Um, uh, acting, exploring, instigating, fighting, optimizing, problem solving, and storytelling. It doesn't touch on how do you solve a problem that emerges out of this uh, player type. Yep. Um, it, it, like, Which is a real break from what first edition and second edition, which was almost the same thing. Well, even <laughs> the first edition DMG is about telling you how to throw an elbow. That's what yeah. I can tell. Yeah, right. it's telling you how to be adversarial and screw yeah. what the players desire. Uh, you're supposed to be refereeing the game, damn it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at least they start with, you know, uh, with giving the players what they want as being a, a point in the, in the, in the introduction. Yeah. But, or in the, I don't know, somewhere in the, it, first part to the the first chapter. The, yeah, I mean it it does say okay. that you know that the the point is to have fun and so, you know, your eyes should be on having fun. Sure. Yeah. And I I think that's a missed opportunity here. Hmm. But as Ben was pointing out, Tasha's Oh yeah, no. My um my thoughts on this are, you know, it starts with know your players, which is great, but like the problem that I run into when I, when I look at websites, especially Facebook and you look into various DM, DM help and inspiration things can often be solved with, I don't know if I can I curse on this, this podcast. Oh, please do. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll beep it. <laughs> but S- Sam sometimes remembers to bleep out his cursing. Yeah. Only. <laughs> well, you know, good, good for him. Um, so the, the guidance that this book doesn't include in, as far as I can tell, in the introduction or in the initial chapter is the guidance that most DMs just need, which is presented somewhat in Tasha's, which is just talk to your players. Like, right. don't yeah, know sure. your players, talk to them and figure out what they want to do. And when you have difficulties, talk to them about ways that you can make a better story together rather than I need to know my players are this, which means I need to do this to facilitate the party because it's all about me and how, whether or not I can juggle all these things. And it all comes down to me and that's stressful. And it's not, it's a group. It's a group game. Mm-hmm. It's a group storytelling endeavor together. Like, just tell the DM to talk to the players. Yes. And we had to wait six years for that between when the DMG first came out in 5e and Tasha's in chapter four, more or less saying, talk to your players. Yeah. And I've definitely had DMs I couldn't figure out how to talk to. Yeah. People I'd known for a decade and more, but when the topic was the game they were running and I was playing, I couldn't figure out how to make myself feel safe enough to have a conversation. Yeah. Mm. Because friendships are complicated, y'all. 
They sure oh, yeah. are. Sure. And so, I, whenever it comes down to, well, if you're not having a good time, then just leave, or you know, just talk to them. Ooh, just is doing a lot of work, folks. It mm-hmm. is. It is, and it, um, that sort of vulnerability is is scary. Yeah, uh, and I think working through those vulnerabilities ends up with better friends, perhaps, and ends up with a better game for definite. So I, I I'm I'm sort of in the middle here because I hear what what Ben is saying and I hear what Brandis is saying, and so for me. You know, I think then this is a missed opportunity because what it means is they should be saying, talk to your players. And you know what? When you go on any any advice thread, somebody eventually says, just talk to your player like an adult. This is an adult human being. You need to talk to them. But there is the issue of you can't always talk to them. Like there, there are certain social intricacies that sometimes lead it to an un, being an unsafe time or place or place or position to put yourself in. And that's okay to acknowledge that. So that's where the lost opportunity is here, that that should be acknowledged and then provide some tips on what to do then if you cannot do that. Yeah. Like, I think it's beyond the reach of any DMG to break down uh, ask cultures versus guest cultures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But sure. it's, we're getting to the point in this conversation right now where it's necessary like mm-hmm. I'm southern. I'm very southern. I come from very much a guest culture. Mm-hmm. I can't ask for what I want. I I've been taught for 39 years not to. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. when I have to come up with a Christmas wish list, I break out in a cold sweat. I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. <laughs> like yeah, I, I just won't do it. Just right. Just <laughs> right. So, like, there are problems with any answer, and and there are times when like, know your players is what I have to lean on, mm-hmm. because I I can't go have that conversation for for reasons. Uh, maybe there's not time between now and the next session, and I don't want to spend the first half hour of a two hour session. Uh, on that, right? Like, I, I, none of this is actually changing the point. It's not. Like, the answer is talk to your players. I agree with that. It's just acknowledging the places where that can get complicated is both beyond the scope of the DMG and crucial. Yes, and there's still ways they could kind of say, here are some cool life hacks for how you can talk to your players. <laughs> That's fair. And at least, That's fair. At least throw, throw them a, uh, a life preserver. You know? that, that's pretty fair. Or just, or just literally say, you know, there are cultural differences that people as individuals will bring to the table that that's part of knowing your players, but also understand that sometimes constrains conversation. And, it's okay for that to be the case. It doesn't make somebody a bad DM or a bad player to have that situation. So here's here's uh, some you know here's some resources you might want to go check out to yep. to deal with that particular yeah. interpersonal you know swamp. Yep. Yep. One okay. of the so I I I would you mentioned earlier I was a, a moderator in the uh, Facebook 
fifth edition group for, mm-hmm. I don't know, I guess three or four years. And I, I quit about two years ago at this point. Thank I God. Yep. Yeah. I had, a, <laughs> I had a lot of writing to do, so it just wasn't yeah. going to be able to get the time it needed. And I swear to you, like 30% of the questions are, I have this problem with a player or DM. What should I do? Mm-hmm. And right. 99% of the answers are is talk. just talk to them. Yeah. And it's hard. It's, it's mm-hmm. real hard. And it is common challenge that mm-hmm. a vast majority of DMs and players in this hobby face. I mean, if you want to understand for a moment how difficult it is, I don't mean you, Paige, and Ben. You obviously know because you're grown-ass adults. But like, <laughs> it, 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 to, to summarize for everyone in it with sort of a, an analogy how difficult this can be, uh, let's say not everyone has the kind of job where they can march in and have a vulnerable conversation with their boss. Well, yeah. DMing and PCing aren't a uh, boss-employee relationship, but they are uh, a friend relationship where one person has is you know being asked to you know spew out their creativity all over the table and then have it picked through by uh, you know three to five of their closest friends. There's vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and let me tell you also as a I'm a professor, okay, and I consider myself very approachable, right? I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I'm easygoing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a geek, you know, I'm kind of a nerd. I, I, I make jokes, you know, but I am not a student in my own classroom. I'm the professor. And there are students who no matter what, look, I, when I go to work in the classroom, I'm wearing a shirt and tie, right? And a nice pair of pants. So I look like an authority figure. Sure. And that in itself is intimidating, and I have to spend, I want to say an inordinate amount of energy, but it's not really an inordinate amount of energy. It's an appropriate amount of energy in trying to make my students understand that they can approach me, even though I, with the shirt and tie, and even though I'm the professor and I'm standing in front of class, and even though I'm supposedly the quote expert in the room or whatever, right? That I'm still an approachable human. I'm still a human being and you can talk to me and I'm not always successful. And sometimes it's my fault and sometimes it's not my fault. And that same exact thing can happen at anybody's game table. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. Cause I it's, I mean, that. the rules, the rules of this game are interesting and complex and challenging and have evolved through time but it's the same people problems we've been having since the first Gary Gygax game ever. And it's funny, ironic that in a hobby where you're supposed, where the stereotype is that we're all geeks and we don't have good social skills. And yet the game is 100% all social skills all the time. What? And math and math. social skills and math. Yes. Yeah. Let's, let's move on. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so just we, so you just so you know do the other yeah. half hour on uh I mean, instruction yeah. it's no we totally pages of introduction yeah. kids yeah no it's fine. No, look, look brandis and i are famous for spending two hours on you know 40 pages of of one of the books right Accurate. so <laughs> all right chapter one 
A world of your own. The big picture. A whole new world. Yes. <laughs> so, so I, I love the core assumptions right out the gate. Yes, um, I do too. Yes, I because do too. Because they're all levers, and mm-hmm. it's going to call out how they're levers. The only one that they don't mess with as a lever is conflict shapes the world's history. Because, I mean, if there's no conflict, you don't have history. That's just that's how we understand history. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you also but, don't have trauma. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but then the very next thing is, you know, it, it's your world. Here's all the ways you could move some of those levers and have interesting outcomes. And like, that's a that's a great great throwback to I want to say the. Um, DM's option high-level campaigns from second edition, mm-hmm. um, and probably a bunch of those uh, the blue cover DM supplements from second edition that I uh, mentioned earlier. Um, just very, very useful stuff to like jostle your brain loose yep. from from any of your default assumptions about what a setting has to be. Yeah. Also, in fourth edition, all the set the campaign setting books started with. Like the, you know, 10 things to know about Eberron, 10 things to know about right. the Nintir Vale, 10 things to know about Dark Sun, you know. Yep. Uh, and this is kind of that same kind of style of thematic, you know, what are the themes? What are, what's the state of magic? What's the state of deities? What's the state of conflict kind of thing? And, and, it's, and it's really appropriate as a, here's a one or two page roundup of what your world is about. Yeah, I like that, and it sort of ends up, like, they talk about um, the core concepts, and that sort of plays into what themes you want to hit in your uh, in your world. I, I understand they talk about themes later on down in the whatever, mm-hmm. but it, it kind of sets the stage for that. My right. malfunction is... I'm, I'm a relatively new DM. Maybe I've run a couple adventures. Maybe I've run Lost Minds of Fandelbert. And I get my DMG. And I'm like, okay, this makes good. And the next thing they tell you to do is, we're going to make some gods. Like, <laughs> loudy. Yeah, yeah, That's a yeah. lot of responsibility for a new DM. Mm-hmm. I mean, I it's it's some pretty good, uh, you know, foot on your butt into the deep end. But they do give you sample pantheons. They do, and there's kind of a cultural gestalt if we knew know all these mono or polytheistic pantheons from mythology and history and all that kind of stuff. And gamers kind of gravitate to that stuff anyway. Yep. Thor is you know a character we all we all know at this point. Sure. Um, I I feel like the it's another missed opportunity here because I feel like a lot of DMs are going to look at that or would be DMs would look at that and be like, dude, that is, that is just too much. I can't do it. Like that's too much responsibility. I'm out. I'm not going to DM. Interesting. And I, I feel like we lose people that way. See, okay. I feel like, and, and I had said uh, earlier to Brandis that I feel like this chapter can be rearranged. Yes. And and this is part of the reason why. And it's not that I feel like it's a badly written section. It's just that I feel like it doesn't go far enough to tell the DM what to do with the Pantheon. Yeah. 
once you've created it. So it feels very overwhelming and then there's no real, and here's how this matters to your game to have these 20 gods. Right. right. And so, and so that's okay. Actually, I actually like the way the se- the section is written and how it does like the whole divine rank thing and all that. I think it's a really good section actually, except that I feel like it's too early in the chapter. 100% agree. Yep. Agreed. I, I can certainly accept that. I, I made a note that I thought it was funny that the, uh, the section is doing early marketing for Exandria uh, with the uh, default Pantheon, since Exandria just uses the mm-hmm. 4A default Pantheon, right. uh, plus yep. Saren Ray for you know reasons. Um, right. <laughs> but mostly I was just delighted to see any nod at all to Nantir Vale, because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I like Nintendo right. Vale back in the back in the day. Like anyone who really dug into it, found it to be at worst pretty inoffensive, and mm-hmm. at most, uh, hey, thank Christ it's not the realms. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the reasons why Fourth Edition is a good edition for me, and it has nothing to do with mechanics. It's about the fact that. When I first started playing D&D way back in 1982, the way that we played, we learned about the world and the lore through play because not everybody knew everything about it yet, right? Like no, my brother, when he was DMing me through our first sets of games, I didn't know squat about Greyhawk. And my brother knew a little bit, but when he would run these modules, these adventures, that's how we learned about the world. And it made it so mysterious and fantastic and awesome. And we didn't have to know the 25 gods in the world. We just needed to know the ones that were, uh, you know, having an effect right where we were. And we learned about the world through play. In Ninantir Vale in 4th edition, because it was a new setting, everybody that was playing that edition was learning about the world as we played. And it felt like a magical new thing. And that really felt like early D&D to me, despite the mechanics not being early D&D mechanics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like the way people, like the idea of the Raven Queen just bit people on the brain and never let go. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, like this chapter explains to you that Kate Blanchett is their cast for the Raven Queen by sure. calling out hell as, you know, yeah. the, the parallel of the Raven Queen. Yeah. <laughs> I think like, it. Keep crashing that role. It, it, yeah, of, of course she's amazing. She's played by Kate Blanchett. What do you want from us? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, so talking about like being introduced to the setting through play, um, I, I kind of feel two ways about that. Uh, Coming from the the LARP communities, where uh, players are very much expected to like read culture packets and set their characters within them to some degree, mm-hmm. um, whoa! Like going in cold is a foreign idea. Yeah. Right. Like a, a, as a player, just how you don't how do you set your character in that is is a daunting idea to me. Not not an impossible one, right? I've I've done it just it, it stopped being my preferred mode of play because it becomes so important to me for my character to belong yeah. in the world. Mhm. That's understandable. I get that. But I mean, I, I also, you know, so here's here's my other reasoning too is that uh, when when a lot of DMs have their own homebrew world, 
right? And mm-hmm. so when you're a new player joining a group and your uh, ha- your DM has their own homebrew world, you know, they like I give my players a 10 page, you know, packet that has everything they need, right? Yeah. So page. that's their. Well, I mean, that's the, I don't want to, that's the, I don't want to overwhelm the new player yet. Yeah. Right. I'm not going to give them the 60 page one. Okay. But I mean, that's the, that's the thing, right? Because, but that allows them the chance to get to know the world a little bit and then create a character that probably is going to fit in there. But then the majority of the lore they're learning through play and that matches my play style. And the Nintir Veil vale fit into that really well. So I have a, a particular love for the Nintir Veil vale because it was that style. Yeah. And it was yeah. it's the only D and D edition that that other than first edition that is like that for me. Yep. I I, um, I think that's totally valid. I sure. I like the Forgotten Realms only because that's where everybody is. And that's the the center of attention at the moment. Uh, it's well documented all over the internet. So I got the entire history of the realms right there because people care about it in excruciating detail. But having said that, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, having said that, I don't, if I, if I were running a game and I felt like I could set it anywhere, uh, Forgotten Realms would be the last place I'd put it because uh, I I respect Ed Greenwood's contributions to this hobby. I revere him as a uh, uh, a a creator of this hobby, and also I'm freaking tired of his self insert immortal NPCs <laughs> that are all powerful and that your characters can't ever match. Like, well, and too many of them are skeezy old dudes too. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Uh, so, like, I I am running a game set in Forgotten Realms now. Uh, I am the DM of the Feats and Fables Twitch show on Monday nights from eight PM to ten PM Eastern. Falls and, to adventure. Yes, and uh, <laughs> it is set in the Forgotten Realms, and it is set in Aglarond. Uh, nice. And there's plenty of history there. It hadn't been discussed since 4th edition. But there's plenty of good history there. And the first thing I did is I took the symbol out back and shot her. Harsh, but like, amazing. Like, yep. that's, that's step A. You just got to clean all the, the old NPCs out so that your, uh, your characters have... Um, Agency. Agency and the freedom to make their mark on the world. So, so the symbol is actually one of the one, one of the ultra NPCs I disliked least because she was most written to be, you know, as much a part of the problem as part of the solution. Yeah, but she's still more powerful than all my characters. And, oh, she, uh, she, she's more powerful than like, a, any three of the other NPCs you could find in the setting. Like, it's sure, completely sure. egregious. Yeah, uh, we'll put her up against Mert, Laryl, Silverhand, and Elminster. Uh, but yeah, and canonically, I know how that's going to go. <laughs> uh, this is why I took her out back and shot her. Yeah, super fair. Uh, she lovely, lovely lady has served her time. <laughs> out you go. <laughs> and the and the and the great thing about this hobby is that Ed Greenwood himself would applaud that decision on your part right. and say, you go have an awesome game, I'm happy. Yep. 
um, which is which is totally great, and and I I fully support that. But I I I'm also running a game in the Forgotten Realms because I wanted to run Rime of the Frost Maiden, um, and it's the only game I've. I'm running in the realms because I generally don't like the realms. I am not a realms lover. Um, What's your jam? I'm I'm a homebrew person. I'm not like Mistara. It was my first setting that I ever ran in because I ran basic D and D and I, and I enjoyed playing in Greyhawk, but I never really ran Greyhawk a ton um, because I, I mean, I ran like, the village of Hamlet and then it was in my world, you know, so it was kind of Greyhawk and kind of not, but um but yeah, so I don't, I don't, I'm just, a, I'm a homebrew kind of DM. I steal from everywhere and things have different thing, you know, different areas that I deal with and whatever. But I, the, my problem with, forgot, we're totally off. We're, we're on page like 10. Okay. But here's the tangent. The tangent is um, when you have any setting with 40 years of development or 35 years of development. Cause I'm, t- I, this applies to Greyhawk too. Okay. As much yeah. as I just talked about yeah. how much I like it, but, but when you have 40 years of development um, through multiple editions, even though Greyhawk's not technically being developed right now, it was developed in third edition. It was the living, you know, Greyhawk thing. And it was the technically the default setting for third edition. It was the default setting for first edition. Right. Um, and so when you have 40 years of development on a setting and you have a group of fans who love, love, love that setting, it's really hard for me personally to DM in that setting without upsetting the apple cart because yeah. I feel like I have to adhere to the canon and I want to improvise and not give a shit about the canon. Right. And I know that uh, many people listening to this will say, oh, just ignore it then. Just do what you want. Except when you're sitting at a table with five players who love the Forgotten Realms and you make something happen and they go, oh, Mistra would never do that. <laughs> then, you know. The thing oh is, you have, to be, you have to be honest yeah. with yeah. your game description. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, it, if it's printed on the outside, hey, I looked at Forgotten Realms and kind of like parts of it but uh, then changed it substantially. And if somebody shows up to that game and saying, well, Mr. would never do that, then then you just get to um, slap them because they knew better. And there's also an easy out on that. The easy out on that is just say, that is dead. <laughs> right, honest, except... Mr. dies all the friggin' time, so... Yeah, but, pretty but, good let me, but let me remind you what we were all just saying about <laughs> ten minutes ago, which was conversations with your players are hard. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> right? So it doesn't matter if I put that as my expectation. In some respects, it doesn't matter, right? Like, yeah. And I'm not talking about a super... like a person. I'm not talking about players who are just showing up to be specifically disruptive. I mean players who really show up because... They didn't. They read it was in the Forgotten Realms, and they didn't see any of the other things that you said about it. And they yeah. show up, and they're disappointed that it's not in the Forgotten Realms that they understand, right? And so that's yeah. that's a very difficult thing for me as a DM. So that's why I say I don't really like running in these other, you know, in in published settings, especially ones that have had forty years of, you know, added canonical writing about it. Not that it's bad. I Some of this stuff is really awesome. I yeah. love Rime of the Frostmaiden. I'm having a great time. But, And that's actually also, it feeds back into, if we loop around, why I also love the Ninter Veil. Because since it only had a six-year run, and it's, or whatever, five, whatever, and it stopped, like, 
it's a closed world right now. Yeah. And so the light setting never got really fleshed out. Right. They, they did do some really nice bits in um, Dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Like but, specific articles right. that are still fairly like, here's one postage stamp area in the whole thing. Right, right. But but my point is like the e, uh, the fourth edition is done and they really haven't canonically done very much at all with the Nintendo Veil since it closed, right? Yep. Since since fourth edition ended. So therefore yeah, there's been nothing. Nothing. Yeah. So therefore it, it doesn't doesn't suffer as much from the here's a, a forty years of canon. I, I do feel like that's fact and dodge around. I, I feel like that's one they could bring into the DMs Guild basically for free, but what do I know? The DMs Guild has rules. Yeah, no, but you no, know what? I think I'm part, saying part like, of that, though... WotC could do that at, yeah. at no cost at all. Maybe, except I think there's a problem uh, because if they do that, then they're afraid, I think, that it implies bringing all of 4th Edition into the OGL instead of the GSL, and that's a legal thing they've probably been told not to do. There's, there's no way... Forgotten Realms is in fourth edition. Everyone is right, in fourth it, edition. Right, those but are those are world. right, but they were also in third edition, so they're subject to the OGL. Yeah, but whereas, but they're not. We, they're specifically excluded by the OGL. You know what? I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I have yeah. no dog. Anyway, in yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just saying, like, I'm saying, there's probably whether we agree with or whether the reasons are quote real reason or not. That's probably something about it, right? Well, like, so, so just so I've said this, realistically, the reason is probably uh, they want to retain the ability to like, release Nentir Veil on their own someday if they feel mm-hmm. like it. You know, maybe it's another seven years from now, whatever, right? Um, yeah, that's that's where I'd put my my betting money on as their reason. They don't want sure. someone to beat them to the punch in the DMs Guild. With an interior supplement. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they opened it up, th- there would definitely be about 20,000 of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I agree that's that's what would happen. Like, Nintir Vale is not going to sell in the DMs Guild. Like, let's all be very honest with ourselves. I, uh, I don't know. That's a lot of toss-up. Uh, but yeah. people have written all kinds of stuff in Nintir- uh, on, uh, on the DMs Guild that hasn't sold, so... That's yeah. what I'm saying. The vast majority of things on the DMs Guild never sell more than 10 copies. Sure. And I feel like this would be about like that. I've released two things of the DMs Guild. One of them has sold exactly 10 copies. The other is at 691. I have a very skewed idea of what's realistic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> two points make a line. Now yeah. I, know. <laughs> I, I have three oh. products. So I have three products and one of them is sitting around 60 right now. And one of them is at 300 something but it was pay what you want so of course yeah, yeah, and yeah. then one of them I'm a collaborator in so uh, it's at you know 70 something but mm-hmm. yeah I mean yeah no it's it's true it's true that that's that's a whole skewed other ball of wax so maybe we should move on and move uh, to the next section of chapter one your campaign so I think this is a pretty strong argument for should have come first yeah because right. exactly like when you talk about world building I mean Give me a map. I guess we're good. Is well, I mean, maybe not. Maybe not for a lot of world builders. World builders to start. 
Yep. Sure. I mean, maybe maybe not call it mapping your campaign. Maybe call it, you know, the you know, I, I don't know what to call it. But but mapping you don't you don't want to make it all about the map specific. You don't want to make the sure. you don't want to give the impression you're teaching them how to draw a map. It's more about the settlement and starting small and yeah. how you know world. Right. The the thing is, I think they're talking to a whole lot of people in this hobby that have doodled maps before just casually putting them together because oh, yeah. when we draw that map on paper, our, our big wild meaty human brains cannot help but say, Oh, well there's, there's a neat little town there and it's got a lake and the lake lake has a monster. <laughs> right. And, I so mean, your brain just does this mm-hmm. in the background. So, so, like, quick show of hands, uh, the, the three of you and all of our listeners everywhere. Don't take your hand off the steering wheel, by the way. Um, if you were a world builder before you were a DM, raise your hand. Because my hand's up. Well, actually, I mm, the thing is, I started playing pretty young. So sure. I went from, like, nothing to, oh, I'm the DM. And now I got to now I got to now I got to do the thing. So sure. I think normally it's you build worlds in your head. Yeah. For your novel. Uh, like what I'm getting at here is that I feel like this chapter um, hooks people who are going to be world casual world builders anyway. Yeah. Um, and oh, I could DM something in this. What a notion mm-hmm. is is the surprise. Yep. Uh, one thing I think they did leave out of this is that um, there are a whole lot of maps out on the internet. Sure. And really, I of that group that raised their hands, I was not one because I was a storyteller first. Like, sure. I want to know what the story that I'm trying to tell. And then once I know what that is, I can determine where things are. Okay. And I feel as if the ideas of you know, creating your campaign and theme and all that stuff could be swapped as to whether it goes directly after, you know, what are the core constants of your worlds and what isn't. Sure. And that's just my only thought there. I'd still agree that God's that early is a terrible idea. Yeah. I, I, I like the section on the, how to map because it, it gives you a way to scale your thoughts Sure. Um, I don't know if uh, that's a hard question, Brandis, because I mean, if I think about like I was a player first. Okay. But I was playing in my, in my brother's game, my, my brother, my older brother. Okay. And so like I'm playing in this game and I'm, I'm, I guess I was a world builder first cause I could go back and I could imagine, Oh, well, what if we found a ruin and we found this and we found this over here? And what if there was this going on? Even when I was a player before I even, yeah, thought about DMing. I, so I suppose, yes, I would raise my hand. Like, I was a world builder from basically the moment I finished my first read-through out of dozens and dozens of read-throughs of Lloyd Alexander's Chronicles of Pride. Oh, those mm-hmm. are some of my favorite books! I, I, I was <laughs> off to the dang races, folks. And <laughs> Oh, they're so good! Yeah. How old were you when you read them? Oh, geez. Um, eight... Sure, sure. Nine? Like, I was at exactly the right age where 
I loved every book except Terra and Wanderer, and it took me many more years to understand that no, it's the best one. Yeah, yeah. Because like I, I didn't understand about growing up yet. Yep. How, how could I? <laughs> I understood yeah. about heroics. I I really enjoyed those books, and yeah, like the Earthsea books or the Dragon Riders of Pern or yep, uh, Black Cauldron, all. Yep. Well, welcome to my personal appendix N, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the thing is, I'm a decade older than you are, I think. Like, I'm going to be I, 50 in a week. Okay, uh, yep. You You're, seem young for those. Uh, I, I turned 40 in July. Okay, so I am about a decade ahead of you. Yep. So apparently they were just hanging out. Those books were just hanging out. when. Well, yeah, Lloyd Alexander wrote them in the 60s. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. And so, Ben, how old are you? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I am but the, the child in this group, probably. Well, I, I think we need to establish that Sam is extremely old. That is what I want I, all of our listeners yeah. to know. Yes, Jeff Greiner always says I'm older than Dirt. Oh. Well, in, in my friend's group, Dirt's 30, so, so are we all. <laughs> Rough crowd, man. Rough crowd. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I get all those those young adult novels and D and D at about the same time. Yep. I I wandered into a bookstore with my mom in eighty one or maybe eighty two, and yep. it's like, oh, there's a monster on the cover. Can I have that book, mom? Okay. <laughs> and then was very confused to discover it was not a story about monsters. Uh, so well, truth I, in advertising hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> right uh but you know here i am now having discovered that it was far far better than a book about monsters um right but so i i went right to the dm's chair immediately because i had nobody to play with me so i had to bully my younger brother and his friends into playing that is more similar to my path into the hobby than most folk stories mm-hmm. uh, i went to a garage sale and found a bunch of the old uh, choose-your-own-adventure books that were like D and D ish, yeah. You know, uh, uh, fighting fantasy kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, just pr- probably fifteen, twenty of them, and started trying to um, backform what D and D must be from those books. By the way, you can't do this. <laughs> it does not work because they had nothing in common with D&D rules. But that's an excellent exercise for a young brain to figure out how stories work. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, there's just one problem. You grow up to be a game designer. <laughs> Mothers, well, don't let your children grow up to be game designers. Is what I want you to know. Not, not unless they have a, a spouse, spouse with a good job and benefits. That also happened to me, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> it happens to a lot of successful game designers, actually. Yeah. The ones that don't have a spouse with a, a good job and benefits don't end up being game designers because they can't afford it. They, they starve, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Yep. It, but um, you know, from there, I, I had a tabletop game that I ran, but it ran sort of like Dragon Quest. And then finally, I asked my parents for... Um, the the Holy Trinity of uh, Second Edition. This is this is 1993. Uh, it was the the last dying gasp of the Satanic Panic, and so <laughs> they didn't tell my grandmother what she was giving me for my birthday, but still had her sign them. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so speak not to me of the ancient magic witch. I was there when it was written. Uh, yeah, <laughs> having started playing in 82, I saw the satanic panic. Uh, yeah, for sure. Full frontal. I was lucky enough that my parents uh, just appreciated the fact that we were reading. My brother and I were already big readers. Mm-hmm. And so to them, it was just, oh, it's another book. And oh, we're rolling some weird dice. Okay, that's weird. All right, well, whatever. Like they didn't care. Yeah, at so least while I home at the table and not yeah you know out getting into trouble exactly and so and 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 we could have all of our friends over you know and or we could go to their house and but when my parents would call it's like they hear us in the background rolling dice and doing whatever so it's not a big deal but I saw firsthand some other people's parents and church communities and whatnot just go ballistic so it was not fun. But I have I have memories of those those hoary old days that uh, that have all my hand doodled maps on them. Hell, I probably still have those things somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's probably mm-hmm. in one of our closets somewhere. It's probably in a closet somewhere. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, when I'm famous, you'll be able to 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 sell them for a million dollars. What? You're already <laughs> famous. I'm waiting till you're dead because everything goes up. That's best. That's best. <laughs> Not that I'm hoping it comes anytime soon. Just uh, but but I think that a lot of world builders start off with doodling maps, and I think that's why they went for the mapping angle. Because the minute you choose to put a name on something, uh, it's it's kind of like Adam in the garden. The minute you choose to put a name on something, you have made a value judgment about that thing. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, there's a story already in your brain when you put a name on something. Yep. Yeah. And if there isn't, there's about to be because, yes. you know, pattern matching behavior. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and, and from there we get into um, like uh, some very light touch demographic stuff, which has appeared in every DMG in one form or other. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think fourth edition, least of all. Um, but it, it's, it's a very boiled down version of what you'll find in the third ed DMG and in the second ed DMG and in the first edition, you know, you get the picture. Um, And, you know, readable. Uh, It could use more depth. Sure. The plus side of its brevity is that the readers will actually read it instead of their eyes glazing over and them looking for a more interesting section. Yeah, no, I, I was is a fault I, of many DMGs. So I pulled up the DMGs for first, second, three point five, and fourth editions just so I could, you know, reacquaint yeah. my brain with what was in them. And man, when I look at the word density on the page in uh, first and second and third edition, like I'm just like, good God, how yeah. did I? Eat? Yeah, friend, they they are murder. They yeah. are they are rough. Yeah. yeah. So I've I've discovered a new record holder a new all-time record holder for that particular task and mm-hmm. i feel bad about it um Isirion's and Kyridian of the west marches oh, <laughs> oh no the font size like, <laughs> yeah this is a truly great book it's just that i'm pushing 40 and 40 is pushing back and i don't like it <laughs> right. one, thing, one thing i do like i've got the other dmgs up as pdfs but I have the fifth edition DMG up in D and D Beyond because D and D Beyond is awesome sauce. 
And uh, uh, we're not actually paid to say that, by the way. It's it's just actually that no. Good. Yeah, it is, <laughs> it is that good. I was very resistant at first, and uh, by the way, sponsor our show. <laughs> sponsor us too. Uh, but I like I can make that font any size I want, and that's lovely. Yeah, if you decide to pick up the book I just mentioned, get the PDF and read that. Unless you just can't stand reading PDFs, the PDF is probably a better product than the book because the font size. Ugh. Okay, I'm done. Sorry. Also, I like the art, and I know we're not here to discuss the the fluff as much. We as always do, though. We always do. Uh, yeah, we do. I I love. It looks like a Jared Blando map, or a, no, it looks like a Mike Schley map. I'm sorry. It, yeah, it, it, it's totally Schley's um, like high, uh, outlining style. I love it. Yeah, and I just think it reminds me of some of the maps in the old red cover Lord of the Rings omnibus edition with a gold foil print. Nice. And uh, I, I think it's adorable. I'm a big fan of Schley anyway. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I mean, we're in, we're in such a golden age of um, setting cartography though with, oh, with yeah. Devin Rue, like existing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because holy hell. Uh, D- Dyson is amazing. Just yeah. Yes, and they're all like really nice people. Like, oh yeah. Schley and, and Jerry Blando aren't as vocal in like social media as some of these other folks. Yeah. But, um, they're super nice and very willing to help, and they answer a bunch of questions. And like Dyson is just one of the most generous. Uh, creators in our community of any type. Oh, oh, oh my god, yeah. I'm honestly, we're in the golden age of D and D. Period. It's well, the sales figures certainly back that up. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, one thing I think uh, the settlements uh, chapter could have, or settlements bit could have used. I have learned from my beloved uh, is a look at it from an anthropology point of view. What is the okay. culture like? What do they eat? Uh, what is their music like? What are their social mores? What are the other things? I mean, it touches on it later when you get into um, calendars and how people measure the year and government and things like that. But, I mean, we often forget that the way that you, the way that many cities are different is in their art whether that's the art of music or the art of culinary and, or the art of just, you know, paintings and decorations. And a lot of that tends to get left out when you're thinking about, Oh, what's in this place? And you know, like if you go on this list, what purpose does it serve in your game? How big is it? What does it look? I mean, the closest you get is what does it look, smell and sound like? Sure. But still. Mm-hmm. Again, I, th- I think it's a partially suffering from the, Here's some here's some sort of academic information, and now let's talk about how to actually use it in a game. Like that's that's the part that's missing in a way, and I and I, that sounds really harsh. The way that I, that sounds like a really harsh critique. I don't mean it as harshly as it sounds to my ears, but it really is a very sort of academic style text where it tells you some facts. And that expects you to be able to just incorporate them on your own. 
And I think that if it had a little more of the, okay, now that you know the difference between the village, a town, and a city, here's why that matters in your game. Just one paragraph, one sidebar, you know, one uh, one uh, example of how to incorporate those three different types of civilization locales. And then that's where you could also put in different points about culture and art. And, you know, like when you look at the commerce, okay, commerce in a city, almost any goods and services are readily available. Many inns and taverns support travelers. Commerce in a town, basic supplies are readily available, though exotic goods and services are harder to find. Okay, well, so what? Well, but and then, and then where do those come from? And then- right. Well, that but that's what I mean, right? Like, and so those exotic goods that are available in the city, what makes them exotic? Why do they get the moniker exotic? Mm-hmm. Right. That's what's not talked about here. So I, I totally agree with you. I think that you know they they they're missing something because it it hues to the more sort of academic. We're defining things for you, and then we're giving it to you to do with what you want. But they're defining things, and I don't, I don't know how to explain what I'm saying. Like, in defense of the section, word count is a harsh mistress. It is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, and sure. something's got to get cut. Well, mm-hmm. okay, we don't have to teach advanced techniques. We need to teach, you know, I guess really journeyman techniques since they are explicitly not teaching beginner techniques. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, yeah, I would. I'd absolutely love it if this could be, you know, another two or three signatures longer, and do a do a full deep dive in how to present something as fully realized and alive. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I I weep with every uh, hardback book writer ever that that never seems to be quite realistic. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, gets back to our uh, it's the golden age of D anD D because yep. everything that can't be put in this I can put into Google or put into YouTube and then you know have Matt Colville tell me about it <laughs> for sure <laughs> a- absolutely or um, you know many other great people that have wonderful ideas about D anD D well and, and you can write guides on it on Drive Through or DMs Guild and sell them for money dollars. Yep. Or, 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 and hear me out here. Hear me out. I can be totally way too idealistic and expect that after 45 years of game development, we might be able to expect our DMG to be written in a way that has all that in it without us having to go to other sources. You're right. That's too idealistic because word, word count is an unforgiving mistress. Well, then make two damn DMGs. Or three. Oh, oh, yeah, you're right. What D&D lacks is too few hardcover books you have to have to run the games. I'm just saying, well, look, people don't read this anyway, right? You and I both know that, (laughs) right? I I agree. Another three chapters they don't read would definitely make it better in another book. (laughs) But those that would read it would appreciate. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's a small, you know. While Dan Dillon was confirming Spelljammer, he told us Christ. no one reads the 5th edition DMG. Yes, accurate. <laughs> it's a very specialized practice, only one client. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you, you hear what I'm saying, right? Oh, like, I do. I do. You know. It's just, like, I can't blame them that much for making tough choices, is the no, thing. No, I, 
I, I get that too, but I can, you know. Yeah. So one thing that um, has gotten a lot more important to a lot more people now that we're paying attention to it is building a, uh, a world of your own without racism. Yep. There's yeah. a lot of things in our culture that just have racism baked in because that's, that's the water we swim in. That's the air we breathe, all of our culture, mm-hmm. all of our art, all of our media. And until you start thinking about it very, um, kind of very deeply, and of course, Matt Colville has a great video on it, uh, but Tanya DePass has also given fantastic advice, like how to create a world without racism might be pretty cool to have in the DMG. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'll tell you what, most of us don't know what that looks like. Yeah. Yep. Right? Like we just we just don't because we grew up in it. Yep. And you you just you it's part of what the human brain does is recognize patterns and make those the norm. And then it only recognizes then it only tells you about when there's a change in that pattern. Yep. That's that's how the human brain works. So when you get inured to the status quo it's really hard to see what that status quo means. Yep. hundred percent. And I, I realize this might be seen as controversial and I am super sad that anybody would think avoiding racism is controversial. I, yeah, I'm going to just claim on their behalf that the people who would find that controversial don't listen to this show. Okay, if you find that controversial, go listen to my show. Go listen to my show. We pretty much end every episode with wear your damn mask and arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. And, Accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, so like if people who listened to this probably heard one episode and heard that. And if they don't agree with it, they probably quit listening. So uh, they're probably not going to hear this episode. Well, they're missing a treat. <laughs> that's, that's right. They are, damn it. They are. Very much so. But like that is something that – 15 years ago, I didn't think about it. And mm-hmm. probably For 10 sure. years ago, I didn't think about it. But in the last five or six years, hell yeah, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it. And I would love some guidance. Yeah. And and there's, better. you know, there's a lot of resources out there now, too, there where, uh, where, like, for example, Asians represent, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Um, yes. Talking about just just going very simple and talking about how just naming your book Oriental Adventures, here's what's wrong with that. And yeah. and just being very real about it and talking about how, you know, that's something that has seeped into our culture as Americans. Mm-hmm. No matter and that's what I mean when I say, you know, we can't help it because it's all around us. The best we can do is learn to start to try to recognize it and try to change. Yep. And as long as we're doing that, I think change will happen. Uh, the problem is that not everybody wants to change, but that's a different topic yep. for a different podcast. Yes, yes. But some, dealing with some of those issues might be a good choice for a future DMG uh, supplement. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. So we ready to move on to the chapter? Yep. Sure. <laughs> okay. So I do like the list of types of government. Uh, It's a classic, and so it's nice to see. Um, I I I know it is in 
some form in the second ed DMG. I'm 98% sure it's in the first ed DMG oh, and yeah. the third yep. ed DMG. So mm-hmm. it's a classic. Um, yeah. And then I, I'm going to take this opportunity to highlight, um, as I've done before, one of, my, one of my favorite sentences in the whole book, the one that made me laugh out loud when I read it. Uh, under currency, um, there's a sentence, people give coins specific names, whether as plain as dime or as lively as uh, gold double eagle. This made me laugh out loud because it is uh, a direct quote, a, a word-for-word quote from the second ed DMG. <laughs> just that sentence, not the rest of the paragraph, just sure. that one sentence. Yep. And yep. it's stuck in my memory uh, rent-free for all these years. <laughs> That is pretty funny. I did not know it had been lifted directly from the second end. Oh, yeah. Word for word. It's pretty hilarious. Rent-free, folks. No, it's living our brains, too. (laughs) Congratulations. Um, But, you know, the stuff on economy here is still pretty light touch because uh, most of what you're going to see about the economy is in the player's handbook, you know, the equipment section, trade Mm -hmm. trade goods. so I'm going to move fairly quickly into factions and organizations. Uh, the, well, the hold most on, used hold on. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Hold on. You know, this is the Edition Wars podcast, oh, so I sure. feel like it is my duty to mention that in the first edition DMG, uh, this this commerce section was accompanied by Brandis and I's favorite section <laughs> in the one knee DMG about the feudal ideals and taxes, fees, and tariffs, and slavery. Oh, and I and I, so I say it's our favorite section because it's the one we hate the most, right? But violent hatred. So, so I guess my point with bringing this up is we have made some progress yeah. because that is not in here. Yeah, yeah. So, the DMG right. doesn't assume your players are slaveholders right. who right. need to put down slave uprisings. Right. Yes. What right. the right. f- Gary? Yes. Yeah. No. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you know Maya Angelou said, "When you know better, do better," and yep. we're doing a whole lot yeah. better. We're doing a right. whole lot better. Like right. we haven't even started on the uh, representation of the female form in the various books. And I'm not going to, because we don't have five hours, but, mm-hmm. um, but that has gotten a lot better too. Everything has gotten better. Yep. Yep. It ain't, ain't there, but it's better. Uh, so, so are we ready to do factions or organizations? <laughs> yes, please. Sorry. Okay. So, 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 dialects though. Uh, oh, um, yeah. Comes before factions. And organizations. I mean, it, it's cool. Yeah. I don't have a lot to say about it because making interesting stories about failure to communicate is a very rarefied skill. Yes, yes. It, it can be done. I've read I've read plays where the conceit of the play is that characters are speaking different languages and don't understand each other, and that it's fascinating, but um, and, outside and the scope of, of D&D, folks. Yes. The thing is, like, usually what bothers me about Forgotten Realms... Uh, and the languages and dialects there is that there are probably a dozen or maybe 15 different human languages. Sure. Mm-hmm. And one elven language. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's super fair. I mean, well, okay, two because the drow have their own, right? Uh, I think in fifth edition, they, Don't speak, they speak undercommon. Elvish and also okay. undercommon. Okay, fair. Fair, fair. Um, and it just, like, 
I'm not a linguist, but it seems to me that uh, an older language like that would mutate far more. Whatever, it's a magic world, I don't care. But sure. one thing it might be interesting to have said here, one thing they do say here that I give them, I give them a star for, is that they... Um, they talk about different languages and you might have a language that's spoken in a region. Like everybody in this region speaks Dwarvish and everybody in that region speaks Elvish, regardless of what their ancestry is. So, yeah. yeah. I thought it might, I thought that was good. Kind of cool. No, I mean, that, that, yeah. is, that is solid. I was just going to say, I don't think it needs more space than it has simply because if you look at the abilities of characters in D and D like language barriers is a fascinating thing in real life and the idea yeah. of the importance of translators and mm-hmm. D&D, you got first level spells that take care of that like right and 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 also not everything you know a, a story about a language barrier is not even as easy as darmok and jalad at tanagra right yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> um which you can make a fascinating story that of course everyone understands a reference when you throw it out like that but it's hard to do at the table, and you can't do it with the tools that D&D gives you necessarily unless you really specifically want to tell that kind of story. Mm-hmm. That's exactly where I am with it, yep. Yeah. All right, facts. All right, now we're doing factions organizations. <laughs> but my third run at it, cool. All right. So – Let's step back and talk about that. Oh, oh, for Christ's sake. <laughs> so so – um, this is this is definitely the most fascinating chapter that did not make it into any actual implementation after roughly Princes of the Apocalypse with um, a <laughs> with, with one honorable mention yeah. to Dragon Heist. Yes, mm-hmm. um, uh, I I think the factions factions are a a cool idea. Um, I do not personally use them in my games. Uh, I had hoped that the D and D Adventures League would use them more strongly than they did. Yep, mm-hmm. and that—that's about all I got to say about that. Okay. Well, so I, I, th- I think this section gets essentially, for my money, overwritten by yeah. the patrons section of mm-hmm. um, yeah. Eberron and Tasha's. Yeah, and those that's are much stronger and yeah. better for yeah. sparking campaign ideas to me. Yep. So I'll take it. Well, and so back to my point that I keep coming back to about this DMG, if you look at the way that f- the factions and the and the group patrons are presented in Tasha's, that's presented in a way of, here's how to use this in your game. Here you go. And this, once again, is an academic statement of, here's what factions are. Here's how you make a rank for them. Here's what they do. But not a, hey, use them in your game Granted, it's not as bad as the previous sections because it does have the examples and whatnot. But because it's using the Forgotten Realms factions, you would hope that it would be in the adventures and other publications in a way that makes it important. And after the first couple, it's just really not. So when you're looking six years later at it, it kind of – you know, so here's the thing, though. That sounds like I'm deriding this section, but here's the thing. I actually love this section because I use it in my game, and I use it – I wrote a, a product for the DMs Guild, uh, the Creed of Oral, and I used it to create the Cult of Oral in Icewind Dale, and I used this section extensively – but only for NPCs and not as a group patron. I, the group patron is a different thing for me because it's directly related to the PCs. This was just a way to uh, structure 
a group of people in the world. And for that, I think it's a really good set of sort of guidelines not as good as the as the patron thing in Tasha's right, but yep. but it's good for NPCs. And but like you said, that means though. Then when we get to the NPC section, it gets overwritten. Yep. Yeah, the, the I mean Tasha's has the benefits of six years of hindsight. Right. Uh, absolutely. Right. Uh, well, and getting to iterate on what's actually also my maybe my favorite section all of Eberron. It's a, it's a yeah, very right. strong section in Eberron, and. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't even explain how much I love that section in Dasha's. Like, I, I, every every line on on the table is, oh, that sounds like a, like a fun campaign. Well, so is the next one. Well, cool. I now have thirty six campaign ideas. Good, <laughs> great, fine. Right. This is fine. I what I needed. <laughs> um, uh, but factions, you know, the other thing that they they missed here is factions as bad guys. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's absolutely yep. skipped for not a lot of apparent reason. Yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and made all the weirder by including sample faction, the Zentarim. Right. You could play this as a PC starting when? Yeah. Oh, right. You, no. Um, and and the Still other salty. thing, but not only <laughs> not only are we missing factions as bad guys, but even faction isn't bad guy, just merely opposed. Like. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, you're doing something, and the order of the gauntlet is counter to you because they swore an oath to do something or other. Yeah, I think they're going to get into that a bit in the the villain section, yeah, um, which is much later. But it, it is a weird uh, gap here. Um, also, I'm amused by the uh, what four four paragraphs on piety that's going to get turned into this massive chapter in Theros. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, there are sections on like renowned systems and honor systems and and um, systems that let you gain popularity within the adventuring locale. There there are systems for that in almost every edition, if not every edition. Yeah, we definitely um, covered one uh, yeah. in Honor's um, Arcana. Right. And so, so, yeah. I, so I guess my point about this is. It's funny to me because I remember when we covered those in those other books, and I remember just from playing different editions, we hardly ever use that. Mm-hmm. And here it is in the fifth edition DMG. And again, we hardly ever use this. Like this isn't in in its conception as written. It's just not used. And so that begs a question of why, but also begs the question of if it's not used that much – why does it keep freaking popping up in every damn DMG? <laughs> well, and, and the answer is that, like, the designers know there's something there that they haven't quite right. landed yet. Yes, and, and yes. It's just this this thing that it, it's it's their green light on the dock, man. Like, they're <laughs> always reaching for that damn thing, and it's not yeah. there. So we beat on boots against the current, Sam. Mm-hmm. I know, but that's <laughs> kind of my point, though, is that there's a reason why it ke- – because the kernel of it should be so cool yeah. in a game. Well, and, and, yet, and narratively, it is great. It's, yeah. it's the mechanic that right. falls apart on them every right. time. So yeah. we've talked about factions and maybe factions bad guys and the villains. I think in order to make sure you're thinking about potential cl- – heroic conflicts in your world when you're building a world of your own 
you should build some bad guys. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. That is yeah. I really wish Short Coast Adventures guy to remember that part. <laughs> like, talk, Skag is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yes, friend, it is. You you invite me on that podcast that we'll have a good old time. Oof. Skag will. Oof. Opinions. Opinions. So many feels. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, it. It was a good idea, and six years later, it had been fined into uh, patrons and Tasha's, and now we're all in a better place. But, but yeah, like so much this book does amount to, well, I wish I could see more of what landed on the cutting room floor, because you stopped too soon. Yeah. I agree. I, I, but the the thing is when, when the critique is that way, it makes me feel like I'm giving a harsh critique. Like it doesn't do it right or it doesn't give enough or whatever. And that's not really how I mean it. I mean, it's great. I just want the extra step. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. You know, for sure. So that's what. Yeah. I, I, want to make sure that I sing 5th edition's praises because I do really, really like 5th edition. And yeah. I do think the DMG is absolutely worthwhile use of your dollars to the point where oh, yeah. I've got it on D&D Beyond, on Roll20, and do are we down to one copy of the DMG these days? Don't. <laughs> yeah. No, this, we have two. We still have two? Okay. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it's it, I've paid them a lot of money for this content. So, so, <laughs> so we have a we have a first printing, and then we have also the uh, special. the special cover because that is exactly the kind of that I am. I will absolutely throw money at special covers for anything. Um, Yay, we're also the as as the One Ring Second Edition uh, Kickstarter has learned to my deep regret. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, you look at that cover. Their special cover is like I've been programmed for thirty nine years to have a Pavlovian response to that cover. <laughs> I cannot be held accountable for my actions. You know, I I got that same conditioning, and then I discovered D anD D Beyond, and it's like physical media means nothing to me now. Do you know that the One Ring Second Edition is not on D anD D Beyond page? I do, yeah, I do. <laughs> but, but for D&D, I, yeah, it's, it's I, super fair. I scratch a lot of my itch for different games with PDFs. Sure. You know, 10,000 Kickstarters for 10,000 games that I will never, ever, ever play. But I'm still pretty curious about them. So I'll pay, you know, $6 for all the PDFs. Um, okay, so. Magic in your world. Um, I'm for it. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, interesting magic is like certainly eighty percent of what I care about in games. Um, yeah, I mean the thing is, I think the default is kind of high fantasy. Sure. So anything that's not like you have sixteen different magic items on a high level character yep. uh, becomes pretty interesting. It is yep. dark sun. Sure. And, mm-hmm. and I'm I, I can have a good time with low magic through uh, amberite lud- ludicrous magic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, give it some some life and some character, and I'm uh, upset. Yep. 
the the what they do not point out in the magic in your world segment. And again, I feel like I'm saying, well, they missed this. They didn't do that. Whatever. Yeah. The fifth edition DMG is an excellent product. I own well, our household owns four or five copies in physical and or digital mm-hmm. format. Uh, That's so, a commitment, friend. Yes. Yeah. Well, they were two. <laughs> Adult, mature, grown ass gamers living in the same house, and like, I gotta have my own copy of the DMV. Well, I gotta have my own. <laughs> she does things to the pages. I'm too occasional. <laughs> I write in my books. Um, she she has decided she needed to fix books before, and I needed my own copy that was not fixed. Fair enough. Guilty as charged. Uh, <laughs> one thing they do not point out in here, though, is. You know, they talk about is magic socially unacceptable? Um, yep. What happens when you have a magic user in your campaign and your campaign is that the magic is unacceptable? Like, I mean, that's how you get into uh, the whole issue with what season of that was uh, Adventures League, second season, where it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. you gotta you gotta register, and it's just like, I'm not registering for Magic well, in your Register these nuts. That's right. Well, it, it works so well in the Marvel Comics continuity. Yeah. Register your superpowers. No. Yeah, no. And I mean, like, that's that's an interesting story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and like, I agree they do not take the time to tell you how to make it okay to play someone with socially unacceptable magic, but that's really important in multiple um, classic D and D settings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, y- you mentioned Dark Sun. Well, friend, <laughs> uh, it's not okay to be any kind of arcane caster because uh, any preserver could be a defiler any second now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Veil of the Lions get me everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And then, like Dragonlance, uh, springs out of uh, you know, divine magic is what, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so on, right? Um, there, there's all kinds of that, that, that sort of thing. And, I, and I can understand again on a page count level deciding that that didn't need to get extensive service, but that's a real specialized skill in its own right. I mean, we could have dumped the languages and dialects section for it. We could have. I mean, we could have dumped factions for it. Let's be real. So, so let me also let, let me also bring up another point, though, is that while the default, generally speaking, is high magic, and that is great, but part of the issue is though that every class has the capability of playing a PC that can wield magic, right? So it's not even yeah. just a problem of well, what if you're playing a low magic campaign? And you want to play 5th edition D&D or what if you're playing in a world in a setting where magic is outlawed and you have somebody who wants to play a wizard? Well, what about the barbarian, the bard, the, you know, the the, the, the arcane rogue? Like, yeah. So, you know, part of the part of the answer to my question is, you know what? 5th edition really is made to be played with characters that almost all of them wield magic. Yes. And wield it well, and it's a major part of their toolkit. 
And the reason that I I feel this so much is that I actually like a low magic setting. I like it where not everybody can cast magic and magic is mysterious and it's troublesome and it's dangerous and people get scared. Normal commoners get scared of people who wield magic compared to something like the Forgotten Realms where, you know, everybody's slinging magic around. Um, that's a very different feel, and I'm not making a value judgment about one or the other. I do also like high magic settings. I mean, my own homebrew in 5th edition is has quite a bit of magic, right? right. But to not address that ideal in here is – I feel like it's a missed opportunity. I, I agree with that. Um, I mean, they they sort of signpost magic could be – very rare. You could have it in an almost mundane setting, but what that means but in implementation how? is yeah. just not not touched on. How? And because you, you you can't you can't even say okay if you want to do that then you can only allow your players to play these subclasses because that would be so restrictive. Well, like people would balk at it, right? Well, well like the the first part of the answer is have a conversation. The second part of the answer is. <laughs> Well, no, no, really. Yes, it's, no, I know. I know. Like, like I know. if you don't have player buy-in, you don't have anything. Sure, sure. No, I, I agree. You know, I agree with that. I no, agree with I, that. I, I, like, well, like, I listen to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, and mm-hmm. so many of their questions that they receive in, in the gaming hut are, "How do I get a campaign to do this?" That is, <laughs> it, it, it's some kind yeah. of call order that right, they right. have a cool idea for, but yeah. player buy-in is obviously going to be hard, and you know, the answer is always. Well, get player buy-in for your weird, difficult idea, mm-hmm. and sure. Well, right, all right, right. But but here's the, here's here's the thing though. With this specific game system, though, with this specific game system, the way that they've created the characters, the the classes and the subclasses, being so open to magic, I f- really feel like they need to make a statement about what to do if you want to play, if you really want to play a lower magic game. Sure. Because it will definitely impact how you have to present that campaign to the prospective players. And that's, as we keep saying throughout this entire conversation, it's not always just so easy to talk, sit down and talk to your players. Even if you give them the three-paragraph pitch or the one-paragraph pitch, and it specifically says A, B, C, D, E. When the new book comes out and it has this new subclass and the player wants to use it, and it's high magic... Like sure. you're having that conversation multiple times, yep. right? Like th- their buy-in has to be founded on uh, I won't get to play everything I want to play. I mm-hmm. need to save that for a different campaign. Yep. Right. And, like they're like like yeah okay. The, the four of us have uh, been around the block and can come up with answers for all of this stuff. Like. Uh, yes, I would love a DMG that had, you know, room for all of this kind of question. Um, we've never seen one yet. It'd be nice. Now, yeah. in fairness, there, there's a lot of stuff in the very back of this book of, of optional subsystems that. Whew, bye, 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 girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sanity system, you say? Uh, uh-uh, I don't believe in sanity clause. Yeah. Um. The. The. The thing is, it's also really overwritten. Like, I think that magic in your world, restrictions on magic should have been a part of the um, 
the part where they talked about the core concepts of the game. Yep. And then, like, schools of magic and teleportation circles and bringing back the dead. Just, like, go throw that away. It's useless. Like, love ya, mean it. Nope. I guess. Like, calling out teleportation circles as a major setting changer is is useful to me. It is, but I think you could put that as one of, you know, the core concepts of your game is I'm Eberron and we have so much magic it is... Um, a part of everybody's day. And I just feel like Paige Count being a harsh mistress, we could have dumped that and spent more time on other subjects. Sure. Well, and also, if you're going to call out teleportation circles as being a huge game changer if you use them, well then, why wouldn't the ramifications of having a very low magic setting be a useful two-paragraph little section to put in here? Yeah, agreed. Yep. Um, so, so the next section, creating a campaign, is really what should have come first, oh, right? Probably. Yes. 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 Yeah. Um, and that that start small <laughs> thing is like, okay, I, yes. I cannot tell you how many people I've had either on my podcast that I co-host with Jenny Loveday, which is the D and D Roundtable, and we have a bunch of designers on there. Yep. We get questions from the fans. And they're like, mm-hmm. "Oh, gee, I have this idea for this world, and then there's bubble, butterflies and dragons." And blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I, I I just want to learn how to write an adventure, how to write for the DMs Guild. And I'm like, write an adventure that takes three hours to play. Yep. Like, get good at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then. Let's talk about writing an adventure that takes three sessions at three hours each to play. And yep. when you're good at that, then we can talk about a setting book. But, right. like, jeez Louise, start small. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like, start, start small is great advice. Create a home base, create a and, local region. Good. And yes, they give us nice. very good, concrete instructions. Step yep. one, create a home base. Here's how you do it. Step two, create your local region. Here's how you do it. Step three, yep. craft a starting adventure. Now, now structurally, you can see reading this that it needed to come first. If you're ever referencing something that was covered in an earlier section of chapter one, mm-hmm. probably you should only be pointing forward yeah. in, your, in your literal outline of the process. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. It, it's okay. Yeah, like, like I said, still excellent, yeah. still an excellent uh, product and one that I have bought multiple times. Yeah. But I, I feel like this is well written and it's a good advice and I mean, it's the best part of chapter one other than the, like the big picture part. Well, and I, I will say I absolutely love the section we're about to get to of campaign yeah, events. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. actually just crazy strong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I don't want to, don't want to jump, jump ahead too much because, like, uh, really detailed stuff about setting the stage, that's really good. Um, teaching people to involve the characters, you, you have nothing until you've done this. Yeah. So, like, if this piece of persuasive essay had gone on another two pages, it would have at least equaled its importance. Yep. Um, and we, we can all wish that some classic modules had learned this lesson. 
the thing yeah. is, it's tough to write for a generic audience. Oh, absolutely. And involve their characters. Like, that's just really hard. Like, living play campaigns have been working on that since Living City in 2nd Edition. And absolutely. it's still pretty weak. Right, and, yeah. and this is absolutely not practical advice for running an Adventurer's League adventure. That, that's right. not what it's trying to write here. It's trying to write about a campaign. Or just in published adventure. Because if you're running Rhyme yep. of the Frostmaiden, like, you can talk oh. to your characters. Ah, uh, except, except in, in Rhyme, they have the secrets yep. that you're supposed to give to the characters. Well, wait, 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 wait. So, oh, wow. so, wow, so yeah. hold on. So let me say, I, I will fully... I will fully cop to the fact that they don't do a good job of explaining how to do those well and how to work them into the characters' backgrounds, which is exactly what I did, was I talked to my characters and figured out what they were thinking about and then gave them some choices of secrets that would fit with a kernel of what they've already got, right? And it was a negotiation to get them to understand the importance of the secret, right? That's what needed to be done to work that type of information into the party as it's going to venture out and actually go through this adventure. I know. So I like the secrets metrics secrets. I like the secrets secrets um, idea. I just Mm -hmm. don't think the secrets really moved me very much. So. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, like I said, I fully tailored mine. So yeah. I took the kernel of what the secret was, and I and I had read through the majority of the adventure by that time, and so I could actually specialize the secrets for each PC. Mm-hmm. And I could also make sure that their background made sense based on what secrets they had chosen, right? So that's part of the, the give-and-take negotiation when I'm dealing with my players on a one-on-one basis and in a session zero setting, yeah. right? Which... Is you know that's not what this says right here about involving the characters, right? right? But but I my point here, I guess, is they are trying to incorporate some of this into more more recent adventures. I'm not sure they're doing a very good job of it. I know that uh, they're they're trying to implement something and not providing enough direction an instruction on how to do it. Maybe at least for new GMs, I can just instinctively, Oh, okay. If I, you know, I can go do this, but you know, been playing for a really long time and I'm really good friends with my PCs. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that was a really, that was a two thumbs down from both of you on those secrets. Uh, You know, uh, Ben is running rhyme for our Wednesday night group. And mm-hmm. uh, we went through all the secrets, and none of them lit me up for my character, mm-hmm. which is fine. Which is fine. I mean, yeah, I think they're an interesting tool. I just don't think that they. And I think that you proved my points by the way that you described yours, mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. I even had to talk about it. Was yeah, they're a tool for how you talk to your players. They're not right. actually anything else. Yeah, but the instructions they give you are cut these out and shuffle them up and randomly deal them to your p- – and it's like complete uh, – right, it's complete. It. Yeah, that's not that's not how I'd want to approach yeah. that. But yeah. I do have players who tend to come to the table with very fully formed ideas of um, 
who their person is. Right. Yeah. Oh, I did too. And that's why I say though, but I worked with them and I tailored yeah, yeah. the secret to match because uh, I, I want them to have agency and I want them to play a character that they enjoy. And that's the part of the instructions on how to do something like those secrets that is not in that book anywhere. And as far as I know, not in Avernus either, because Avernus also had some kind of secret, right? Well, I really like the one in Avernus because it does unify the characters. But how does it tell you? But but I guess my question was, how does it tell you how to use them, though? Um, It actually it does do that because it it implements uh, which NPC knows your dark secret. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Right? So, so that's so it's going to inform that encounter. It doesn't then go on to tell you how it should inform that encounter because that's that is too much to me. Right. Like, given that what the dark secret even is is randomized, if you want it to mm-hmm. be, or or chosen from a list, if you don't, like you can't tell you can't get that far down into the nitty gritty of how to implement it. But mm-hmm. telling you who knows, well that gets you somewhere to me. Yeah, that does. And if if they ha- made every secret from rhyme like that, it might have been a little easier, right? But just saying, "Hey, here's these random secrets. Some of them suck <laughs> and some of them have some really <laughs> some of them have some really pow- like I'm sorry, the Drizzt Dorden fan, I uh, no, no. Like no, they're I'm trying sorry. to be no. funny. They're trying to be funny. Yeah, right? I get it. But but then when you me- when you mechanize that and you make it random and and some some player might get that. Meanwhile, the person sitting next to them gets resistance to cold. Like, <laughs> right? I'm sorry. That's not well, you know. Let's, let's, let's slow down, buddy. Or, or I'm gonna have to whip out the heroic chronicle from uh, Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount, and we'll be here <laughs> all goddamn night. I know. I know. You should probably cut this content because my, if we start down that road, my foul language gets bad fast. <laughs> I, I don't have enough time in my, my life tonight to listen to that. So let's That's yeah. extremely fair, man. Uh, we don't okay. have a pre-established friendship for you to have that kind of patience with my either. Right. But here's my point, right? Things, things move forward in fits and starts. And I think they're trying to do things nowadays where they are incorporate, trying to incorporate characters more. They're still not doing a very good job of it. And that kind of belies the importance that was placed on it. Even in the DMG, it gets like a paragraph and a half. Sure. So, you know, whatever we can move on. Um, so, so campaign events. Yes. Um, I also so this agree is, that this is a strong section. Mm-hmm. Yes, so this yeah, is a, yeah. a, a a table of nested tables. Uh, horrible in programming, amazing here. Um, <laughs> so you get a D10 table of the kind of world-shaking event that is kicking off your campaign or maybe it, it, you know, bringing the party into a new tier of an existing campaign. Um and then each of those breaks out into its own uh, table. It might be a D6, D8, D10, whatever. Um, and honestly, I can get a pretty great campaign idea out of every single entry in the subtables. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, you know, we've ha- our characters have uh, done the role. Was it Tasha's where you have your the past events of your life? Uh, no, that was in uh, Xanathar's. Xanathar's. Yeah. Xanathar's. Xanathar's. Okay. 
Right, because we did it for Dragon Heist, which is way before Tasha. Like, that's fun. We had some of our characters do that. And they're like, oh, this is neat. And that, and that. No, that's stupid. I'm going to change it. And then that, and that, and that. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like this works much the same way. You roll yep. it out there, you look at it, and it's like, yep, yep, stupid, no, change, yep, got it. Mm-hmm. Well, right. You, you're using the die roll to tell you what you wish you'd rolled. Yes. Right. Yeah. It's like when you flip a coin, you find out which one you really wanted to be the one that won. <laughs> yep. yep. Exactly. And so I think this is a great uh, tool for no- novice GMs to come up with a plot almost. Yeah. And also a pretty nice tool for experienced DMs to break out of a rut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I, I have a lot of ideas for my own homebrew setting as to what can and should happen next. But if I decided I was going to incorporate a random role, it probably takes me in a direction I haven't been thinking about. I mean, yeah. odds yeah. on, right? So um, we will be here all night if we go through every one of them in detail. But... Oh, oh, for sure. Uh, I did want to. I was amused reading discoveries uh, that I've um, played in LARP campaigns uh, that used. Um, uh, number six on the on this table, New Land. Uh, mm-hmm. Two of the LARP campaigns I, I have played in were, were that one, and then um, New Artifact that was also uh, access to extra planar. It was also a planar portal. So, so mm-hmm. number seven was uh, two other ones. One of mm-hmm. one of which I ran. So, like, man, this table is alive and well at LARPing. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, and some of them are kind of. Like, if I had rolled plant, miracle herb, fungal parasite, or sentient plant, I'd be like, uh, I don't think I saw that roll. What else? Uh, so, so that's funny, because like, like, um, Sam in the um, Tome Show Discord like tossed out uh, uh, like this page of awesome ideas for that to <laughs> one of the other people on the channel yesterday. Cool. But because, he had a more specific question, yeah, but... Sh- sure, but... It was still basically this. Yeah. Like, I'm with you, Paige. I would have a hard time bringing that to life, but... Well, I mean, uh, I, I say that, but then, like, fungal parasite, I'm thinking, like, contraceps, where you've got, you know, a fungus that yeah. turns people into zombies, and then there's a whole... Oh, yeah, thing. or just think like the largest fungal. living the largest living organism on the planet is a fungus. Yep. So think about largest, it. Actually take... Living- uh, thing in Forgotten Realms is also a fungus. Mm. Yep. See, there you go. Yeah. So to me, that's like, okay, it's taking over the world. It decided this. You're all are messing up. I'm just going to eat everything. Wasn't that an M. Night Shyamalan movie? Probably. Yes, probably. Happening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing the happening. Anyway, uh, so the next it talks about predictions, omens, and prophecy. And this little section is like a blog post I could have written. Yep. Uh, because I, I love using prophecy and, and omens and whatnot in my games. Um, and I think they're a great, useful item. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, this sort of says a lot without really telling somebody how to do it, how to work well, it into the game. The, the bullet points are, are really trying. I, they are. If it doesn't say the thing you need to hear, yeah, you know, you know sure. fair. But but mm-hmm. I think that 
I think the effort was completely real to break to get all the way down to the implementation step. Yeah, I guess for me, this is the kind of thing that needs an example. Sure. Right. And I could say that about a lot of parts of this book, right? So, you know, whatever. Yeah, it definitely makes me wish um, Dragon Magazine were still running uh, Ray Winninger's uh, Dungeon Craft um, Mm -hmm. uh, column because that that was gold. That was just gold. Yeah. And I don't like uh, the Prediction Omen Prophecy is pretty cool. The Myth and Legend, I think, kind of is... Squishy. It, 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 yeah, it is. That's that's extremely fair. Um, it, it's kind of uh, too much of a catch-all for the others. It's like mm-hmm. pick one of the others, but make it high-powered. Right. Okay. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. He, no. Um, but but then we get to something that uh, feels like a great callback to the thing we always <laughs> do callbacks to in this show: <laughs> tracking time. Sam, what's the line? <laughs> it is, uh, you, you cannot have a meaningful campaign and if you do not track time, all in caps and bold by Gary Gygax. Uh, and in passive voice, my friend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, it, unless uh, records are kept. Yeah. Yes, unless records are, in, unless accurate records are kept or it's something. Yeah. Anyway. They're talking about maintaining, like, uh, Placement in the year and placement in continuity, and I'm definitely running a game where some of those are super important, and some of them I could get lazy about and my players wouldn't notice. But I also set my campaign in a place where the seasons don't change as much because yeah. it's Spain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the whole tracking time thing. Uh, honestly, I think they're a little too proud of the calendar Hartos. Well, sure. Uh, yes. it is, mm-hmm. Like it does totally satiate my need for order in a calendar, and it's pretty cool, and I enjoy it. it, it but honestly, we could have taken the space to talk about something a whole lot better. I I will agree with that. Um, I mean, I think it's important from a making your world seem real to have religious observances. And civic observances and fantastic events and have those tied into the history and why it's important to the culture of your people. I yep. don't know that this portrays that in a way that's digestible for your DMs. Like well, that almost goes back to the when you're talking about a settlement, what are their holidays? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, well, so so a lot of what we see in this chapter is like th- they assume that a phrase that a sentence that starts with "give some thought to" is going to be enough and we'll send you into doing the work mm-hmm. right like, but then we it, get back into you know page count as a horrible mistress yeah so it's just something but give some thought to is that their placeholder for um we're not going to necessarily walk you through the thought process but like we assume you're smart enough to start breaking that down into chunks and well reader sometimes i'm not <laughs> And and the thing you know? is, with with word count being a harsh mistress, they should have left the sidebar for the calendar of Harptos out. Like, well, sure, no, no, no argument, because right. yeah. it doesn't actually tell me anything. Yeah. Like, there's an annual holiday. What does that mean? Right. I mean, it's it's supposed to be an example, but yeah, yeah, that goes into Skag, which I believe it did. Sure, it did. The, 
they'll never release a Forgotten Realms main book that doesn't include yeah. that calendar. Um, ask me how I know. Because <laughs> they, they haven't yet? They haven't yet, and they've had plenty of chances. <laughs> so I, I agree with the whole the, the idea of when they start a paragraph with "give some thought to." That's their that's their tell for you know we're not going to do it for you. We are expecting you to do it, but you know perhaps this would have been a good place to actually do that instead of just saying to someone, "give some thought to." Mm-hmm. I mean, it's better than writing on the page. Good luck. Yes. Yeah. Now I'm going to read that sentence everywhere it's in here as good luck. (laughs) You're you're welcome, Sam. Thanks. I'll be here all day. Uh, One one thing that I felt uh, did not get enough uh, writing was ending a campaign, and it should have been the structure of a campaign, like rising action, you know. Mm-hmm. First crisis, mm-hmm. falling action, rising action again, second crisis, then the climax, then the denouement, then the epilogue. Like, right. like things got to have a beginning, a middle, and end. And they do have to have an end. And it's okay for a campaign to have an end. Yep. You know, I start if a it new does. Campaign. Yeah. And, and that's our next section, and that's good. Like, I, like, honestly, I, every campaign I have built, I figured out what the final epic scene looks like or, or probably will look like, and then build toward that. Uh, so I, I aggressively don't do that in part because I know that having too much of an idea is a way to guarantee it doesn't happen. Uh, oh, it's never happened. It's yeah. never happened. Um, but also just, I'm always playing to find out kind of what my climax is going to be. Uh, mm-hmm. like, I'm not criticizing your style, not 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 even the tiniest bit. Just that's not my process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've gotten into some really tough conversations with with players uh, who do have that as part of their process and don't understand when it is really just not part of mine. Yeah. Uh, hey, everybody's got to do the thing they do in the way they do it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. One uh, one part of the ending ca- a campaign uh, write up that just makes me snort with laughter if I think about it too hard is <laughs> in the end though the new campaign is a new story with new pre- protagonists they shouldn't have to share the spotlight with the heroes of days gone by. Mm-hmm. What did you say? Forgotten realms. <laughs> uh, <no burn>. Well, and and you know they didn't know when they were writing this that Critical Role would be how so many people came into the hobby, right? right. But oh boy, <laughs> that's uh, that's an interesting set of examples as they go back to Iman. Apparently, <laughs> I, I tell you what, Critical. So this is a sidebar, but um, <laughs> weird. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> Two years ago, when Ben and I were fully in charge of the D&D at Dragon Con. Was that two years ago? Uh, Three. Three years ago. No, four years ago. It was It was over a great many years. I'm not at willing to put time, one year into Ben and I were very much in charge of all the D&D at Dragon Con, which we have not been for a year, two years. Uh, we said, we're going to do starter like D&D test drive campaign. It'll be short. It'll be just two hours. 
And, uh, you know, it'll just be a real simple scenario. and It'll be like, you know, test drive D&D. And I'm like, nobody's going to want to do this at DragonCon. Like, you could either get something signed by the entire cast of Firefly, or you can play D&D for two hours in the basement. You can watch uh, every doctor from Doctor Who debate feminist theories in modern science fiction, or you can play D&D in the basement for two hours. I didn't think it was ever going to go anywhere. We had so many people that we had them lined up and were a fire hazard. (laughs) And I went through the line kind of casually asking people, why the hell are you here instead of at the BDSM ball? uh, A fair question, one feels. Sure. Yes, yes. And uh, it must have been 60% of them said, well, I've seen D&D on Critical Role, but I've never played it and I wanted to give it a shot. Outstanding. Like, like Critical Role is not the show I like. It's it's a great show and it's a lovely show. It's just not what I want to watch. Uh, but holy wow, the impact on this hobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, buddy. I think it's pretty undisputable at this point. Yeah. I think anybody who thought they could dispute that when they saw the Critical Role Kickstarter go over mm-hmm. a million dollars. <laughs> And then go over two million, right? And then, right? I think I think at that point, I think some people must have looked and said, "Holy, yeah." Well, we didn't really give that much credit to Critical Role, and now we need to. Mm-hmm. Well, and and while we're covering Kickstarters that have uh, hit that seven digit mark, uh, mm-hmm. Matt Colville has come up a couple times in this conversation. Sure. And, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, big same, right? Yeah. Anyway, so we have already been recording for two hours, so let's move on to the last uh, few pages of the chapter. (laughs) Almost there, folks. We're almost there. Stay with us. Oh, my God. This has been a great conversation. It's been super fun. Super fun. We just need to do it over the course of a six-episode series, apparently. Yeah. All kinds of fun. Um, So so play style – is sort of another way it's, it's sort of the GM's perspective on um, player style, right? Like um, I am at this point, I'm only dimly aware of hack and slash campaigns because it's so far from what my player community is into. Yep. Right. Um, Immersive and something in between are both valid descriptors to me. Um, And, you know, I do like the bullet point of questions about what something in between means, because realistically, like almost every campaign is going to be something in between, because yep. not every player in the group is going to want the same thing every day. You know, tastes vary, and that's important. And, and here's years later, we got an even better discussion of this as the slot zero discussion in Tajus. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. And but here's where so here's where my critique of this of this chapter turns from. Hey, all these previous pages to this. This is page thirty four. All the thirty three pages before this kept saying, "Hey, we know you're not a new DM because we told you right at the beginning that if you're a new DM, you should go do the starter set, and we've been giving you sort of." Uh, advice and and figuring that you're going to understand this and know how to do it. And then here's this page with very, very basic beginning DM information. Mm -hmm. By the by, if I was 
new to this game and I was just like, well, I'm going to run something for my group and I buy the DMG and the first thing the DMG tells me is go buy another product. Rage. Like, yeah, right. Watsy. Well, yeah. I mean, the starter set was certainly marketed on the cover of the box as the starter set. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In, yeah. in all fairness. Sure. But my point with this section is, so then they spent 30, 33 pages adhering to their supposed thing. And then now, now they take a whole page and spend it on what to me feels like very beginner type stuff. I'm not saying it's unnecessary. I'm not saying it's not well-written or good information, but to me, it feels like, you know, they could have filled this space with other stuff. Okay. What they needed was a chapter for, uh, I'm a new DM and I'm fixing to run my first adventure. Then they need a section for I'm a slightly less new DM and I'm creating campaign world. Then I'm a uh, experienced GM and I really want to take it up to the next level. And here's some tips and tricks. And then right. I am uh, the grand poobah of DMs and here <laughs> is something else. Hi, Matt Coville. I don't know. I mean, yeah. like, the grand poobah DM is not going to look at this book. Fair. Except for, like, to know what treasure to put in certain places. Yes, accurate. Yeah, fair. But it's almost like they could have had a chapter for the, oh, God, help me, I've got a game to run tonight, versus I'm going to start a campaign, versus here's some next level, next level acts. That yeah. Like, worry about as a new video. I think that textual perspective is, like, really complicated. Yeah. Like... Because so much of the time, I would myself regard. Uh, I'm not reading this book while I'm in a panic. Like I don't go to a general set of how should I organize my time for the DMG. But that's totally a thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I've just seen a lot of. Oh my god! I have to DM tonight, and I don't know what to do. Uh, sure. Sure. Letters to the editor. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. That's totally fair. That's totally mm-hmm. fair. And that's where you get the the popularity of projects like, you know, products like Mike Shea's, you know, the tips for the lazy DM and, and return of the lazy dungeon master. And here's how you prep your game if you only have an hour. Yep. You know? Yep. And by and remember the fourth edition DMG, or was it the fourth edition DMG too? It actually has that. And actually the third edition also has a little section that says if you if you need to run your game and you only have three hours to prep, here's what you should focus on. If you only have 20 minutes to prep, here's what you should focus on. Mm-hmm. Because I pointed out, um, when Brandis and I did those episodes for the 12 Days of Edition Wars, I pointed out those sections, and I quite like those sections because I think they're actually helpful to maybe somebody who's new or who's having a panic attack or something. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you could also make the case, well, why the hell is this in the DMG2? Because the new DM is not going to be reading the DMG2. Right. Right. So, so that is information that might be useful in here, but you know, as we know, this book is not really meant to teach you how to play D and D. And the other thing is too, when they wrote this, I mean, look, I'm sure that they all hoped that fifth edition would be super duper uber popular. I'm not sure they really thought it would be what it is. I, I don't think anyone could have reasonably predicted the 
these storm of events that have led to right so percent or more growth for six years running right so so that means that when they wrote this they actually were really thinking that it's going to be that intermediate level dm that's going to need this book so we don't have to teach you the very basics to play but we're going to teach you how to take your dming one step further by giving you all this information and telling you how the designers might you know, frame this in their mind as they're designing an adventure or whatever. And so I can forgive a lot of the stuff in here that I've been critiquing. I I don't mean it as, oh, this book is horrible. I mean it more as looking back for six years of development for this game, it would have been nice. And knowing how many new DMs and new players have come to the game, it would have been nice to really have some very basic information in here. And they don't do it until, you know, until they get to the playstyle page <laughs> but yep. you know so yeah anyway i'm just babbling now so we can move I, on i so. think if they were going to do a dmg2 for fifth edition which i don't think they are but if they were going to right sanathars and tashas are what we get instead yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i think it would be um really useful to have an omg i gotta i gotta run a game tonight bit just to to deal with people who are having the panic attack. That's pretty fair. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, Anyway. So continue or or episodic campaigns. That's, that's a good conversation to have. Yeah. Right. Um, Expectations for how much you're going to play. Campaign theme. Um, I think this should have been way up at the top. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. I, I agree, though it, it, it I, I get a little bit of um, English major uh, conversation from it. Like, what's the theme of this work? Is usually a later discussion after what basically happens here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I mean, um, uh, Whitney Beltran just had a great Twitter thread that touched on a lot of this stuff uh, and how sort of theme needs to circle back on itself and keep rhyming with itself. Um, uh, so, so tears of play is uh, really important stuff. Um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, an idea from fourth edition. I feel like that got carried in the fifth. It, it was certainly really cemented in, in fourth. It kind of arguably been present in uh things going all the way back to first, like where you, where you shift into sort of domain play at ninth. Right. Right. Yeah. Ninth or 10th. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just very uh, specifically elucidated. In oh yeah. Yeah. No, I think that the, the Paragon and Epic stuff in fourth is great. And I like the tears in fifth mm-hmm. though. Uh, I do wish that the text called a little bit more um, game balance is going to, die at about you know 14th level 12th 14th level so have fun Um, yeah but i don't think they knew that because i think i think they they didn't they did they did no edition of DD, and i'm going to put this out here no edition of DD has ever been adequately play tested at the highest levels period the end i mean i'm sure like I'll agree with that, and also that doesn't mean that they they don't think that 
it is going to be okay when they're putting out that product. I mean, hope springs eternal, I suppose, but it's not the way the smart money would bet. Well, oh, right. Well, and we find the next edition of D anD. There's some there's some super explicit things about how fifth is written that like seal the deal on uh, high end play like going off the rails. Yeah. It's because the game is balanced on assumption of no magic items. Yeah. Which is not how anyone runs the game, but like, and, you need to be tacking on a couple the, of levels for magic items. All the monster manual, nearly all of the monster manual monsters at CR eight and above yeah. are super under CR, particularly in the current meta. Uh, CR. Uh, uh, over CR, over CR. Okay, okay. I assumed you meant over CR. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Like it, it's it's just a, it's just a natural fact that like dragons are under CR'd for what's there and still maybe over CR'd for real challenge level to players. Everything else is gravely over CR'd, and, yeah. and dragons just get to cheat some. Yeah, like uh, between Xanathar's Guide to Power uh, agreed, Creep agreed. and Hasha's Cauldron of Power Creep. Like, <laughs> literally the article I wrote yesterday yeah. for my blog. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, the game that I've been running online that's uh, James and Tricasso's Attack from the Planet of Tarasks, mm-hmm. uh, which is hilarious, and it's set up for fifth le- or 20th level characters. Mm-hmm. So you just have to assume stuff is bonkers. And uh, they come in and they're like, ho, ho, ho. That Tarask has an armor class of 25 and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, I have a 26 to hit. You miss. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, these are, these are, these are appropriate Tarasks. Hold on to your butts. But whatever. 17 through 20, <laughs> Masters of the World. It's all, <laughs> it's all just made up anyway. As long as everybody at the table's having fun, then that's great. I mean, yeah, like, I, I think that it's possible to start writing encounters that work for that. It's just, we aren't doing it yet. And that's, that's where the, the kind of conversation is. I'm not saying it's impossible to write yeah. balanced yeah, yeah. encounters for 17 through 20. I've just not seen it done. No, we're, we're in total agreement. We're in total agreement on that. Um, it, it's like, I don't know. I'm just excited about my campaign moving into tier three so that I can start having these kinds of headaches and like <laughs> hitting my players harder until they say, ow, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like, you have to, you do that at tier three. Like you wait. Well, yeah. Like, well, well, the point is things haven't gone completely off the rails. Uh-huh. Uh, at the current level, like in in my campaign, I had um, like there, there's there's players ranging from fourth level to ninth, and there's an encounter with you know an assassin with greater invisibility just running around this tiny room they're in, murdering everything. Like I should feel bad about this, but they knew what they were getting. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like this uh, CR versus monster uh, issue has a place. Um, but we don't have enough time to talk about it because yeah, we could talk about this for hours. To talk about page eighty-two of the DMG because I boy, mean, yeah, it's do I yeah, have it's 
Flavors of Fantasy, you said. Flavors of Fantasy, you said. I do say, yeah. <laughs> well, and, oh, the starting equipment table for characters of higher levels. It's Lulz. hilarious to me how oh, yeah. boiled down this is compared to third. I just I can't stop <laughs> laughing about that. Um, well, and I love their idea of a high magic campaign. An 11th to 16th character level character gets three uncommon magic items, one rare item. Yeah. <laughs> like, if I gave 20th level characters that in my Tarasks game, they would think I had gone out of my skull. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Uh, that would be an exciting experiment. It would be exciting. <laughs> People would be mad. <laughs> That's I, not what I want. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I do love the, the you know nod to flavors of fantasy, um, mm-hmm. like th- there is no amount of writing here that would be sufficient. I, I can accept that. Right, right. Um, well, but, but, but here's also once they move into intrigue, mystery, swashbuckling, war, uh, usha, that kind of thing. But so here's the, here's the thing. Why is this not a discussion as part of the themes of your setting or Why? themes of the campaign? Right? Why is this tucked back here and treated as a different section? I mean, this is what I thought the theme section was until I reread this and was just like, right. Whoa. Well, right. I mean, they're trying to answer different questions with themes is, is as much of an answer as there is. Um, yeah. Like the, with themes, they kind of want to raise a guiding question. Um, maybe on the level of Planescape Torments, you know, what can change the nature of a man? level of mm-hmm. theme well right that isn't the the flavor that isn't the, the flavor of fantasy it's like a high magic planar fantasy but the theme is what can change the nature of a man i mean it i still think it should have been like you start off with kind of uh the big picture like you know how important is magic or the gods present or not and then you talk about like themes in your campaign would be the next thing I'd talk about, and then Flavors of Fantasy would be the third thing I'd talk about. Hell, I might okay. even put it first. Okay. But mm-hmm. it's just yeah. in the wrong place. Um, I do really appreciate the uh, table of uh, 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 weapon names. See, I don't. Oh, I, I, I love that they're telling you not to write a new katana. <laughs> well, yes, but I just think that like this level of detail does not go in this in this cha- chapter. Like, uh, it it does beat having a whole separate chapter that it, that has to build up to writing this one table. Sure, but you can also say like in three sentences somewhere in another place in this chapter. Hey, if there are certain weapons that are unique to this culture or this place, you know. Uh, for example, a katana or a hobgoblin uh, curve blade. Then instead of putting new stats on them, just call them a longsword. Sure. Like, and I would put this back where we talk about like optional rules as far as like honor and things like that. Yeah, that might be a better place. For mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah, you could in fact make a whole, you could have a whole appendix of alternate weapon names. Yeah. And you could do various different cultures and and you know historic areas and all that kind of stuff you could even do it for different uh, goblin cultures and hobgoblin cultures and different forgotten realms regions and different mistara regions and i mean you could make three pages of tables 
you know, if you wanted to have an appendix. I'm not saying they should necessarily do that, but it does feel a little bit misplaced, although I understand the the idea of it is more exemplary, right? It's it's more of an example than than actually being useful to me for what it is, like because I'm not going to play this type of game. But uh, understanding that you can just basically reskin a longsword and just call it something else and say it looks slightly different. I mean, that's already in my wheelhouse. I totally love that. And so giving that as an example is a good idea, I think, to me. Yeah, they should, somewhere in the DMG, they should call out reskinning, reskinning monsters, yeah. reskinning weapons, mm-hmm. reskinning classes. Like, we had, um, uh, in a prior game, somebody who was playing uh, a kind of monk, but he, he played it as that he had werewolf lycanthropy, mm-hmm. and uh, his monk powers were all skinned over into into werewolf lycanthropy. Like his head would get nice. all messy, and then he bash someone with his head. Or <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And so I, I think a whole little bit of writing about reskinning would be super useful, um, and it should not be limited to the Wuxia stuff. Plus, yeah. I'm just going to say cultural appropriation is a thing. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. I I would put a warning against doing so blindly somewhere in the DMG. Oh, so you wouldn't just, you know, cut this part out and then that way it could be its own book. We could call it something like, I don't know, uh, Oriental Oriental Adventures. Adventures. Right. (laughs) Uh, But I think a a careful discussion of what cultural appropriation is and ways to respectfully incorporate parts of cultures or ways just to build brand new ones. Like, well, we can find you know, a, a bunch of beardy white guys to write that too. It'd be great. <laughs> I love my beardy white guys. I do. I married one. Uh, but Sp- speaking as a beardy white guy, do not hire me for that book unless you just need like copy editing. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, whatever. If there had been more women, more people of color writing this book, it wouldn't work. But. Uh, yeah, Wushia probably not the best. Super fair. Okay, so uh, I think we're getting t- we're we're running long here. So say let's uh, let's go ahead and round this up. If anybody has any brief last thoughts, we can hear them, and then we can we can uh, we can talk about uh, where people can find us on the internet. My last thought is if you're a DM. Your players are so grateful that you are DMing that they will forgive most mistakes that you would ever make on accident. So just talk to your players, even though it's hard, and and throw out the book and just do the best you can and it'll be okay. That's my thought. Do you have a thought there, okay. Mr. Eisler? I mean, my thought is... This is but a tool. There are many others like it. There are many other great ways to learn the game. Um, we live in a golden age where you don't have to have this book to run a game of D&D, and you don't have to listen to this in order to tell a great story. And there, Except the magic items are here. So, I mean, yeah, you don't have to, though. Don't you remember, from a design standpoint... This game doesn't need magic items, okay? <laughs> Do me like fourth edition and just put them in the player's hand. I mean, oh, no, no, please don't ever do that. Please don't. Yeah, I, that, that makes me 
so unhappy. <laughs> you know what? You know what? If they put the magic items in the player's handbook, the DMG would never sell. That is why they, they will never do it again. I, hmm. that, that is not why I don't want that to happen, but fair. Yeah, so this could be a whole other episode. <laughs> oh, oh, could it ever? Yeah. But you know, like, my thing is not a lot of uh, book published magic items make it into my campaign. I'm mostly modifying from what's there in all kinds of different ways. So I don't want players to see magic items as a shopping list. Ah. That's that that is my uh, will kick against this and die on this hill. It's fine. I like this hill. It is a great uh, hill, sir. You may enjoy yourself atop it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's okay. me, right? Yeah. Um, so, Brandis, do you have any last thoughts about the first chapter of the 5th edition DMG? Uh, no, I, I think I'm set. Uh, you know, we, we agree on a lot of things. We, we disagree on plenty of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think it is a useful chapter to read at least once. And I think that regarding all of the um, give some thought tos as writing exercises is a pretty good idea. Uh, like treat it as a writing prompt because it's actually meant to be. That's what they actually mean. I think is, eh, why don't you write a couple paragraphs on this and see where it takes you? Mm-hmm. And that's a useful exercise. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, there's people publishing uh, world building journals for exactly that kind of thing. They're yeah. full mm-hmm. of prompts. Mm-hmm. They're the same prompts as these. Right. So for me, I think when I look at something like the, this first chapter, this is really more of a going from the premise that it's not for beginning DMs. This is really one of those, um, Hey, if you read this, it'll just remind you of a lot of things that you have already known or learned or learned at one point and forgotten already, or that you haven't thought about for a while, even though you know you've used it in the past, or you know you've thought about it in the past. And so in that way, it's a nice sort of overview of of the topics in the chapter. Uh, I'm not sure it's absolutely grandstandingly necessary. In fact, I'm sure it's not grandstandingly necessary for every DM to read it. But I do think that, you know, I mean, part of the reason I read blogs is for this is for that exact thing of, oh yeah, this is a topic I already know and use in my game, but it's nice to hear somebody else's perspective about it and the way that they state it might trigger something in me that creates a bout of, of creativity. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what this, this chapter is good for in my mind. Yeah. I'll agree to that. Sure. And so with that, um, Let's start with Ben, since I introduced him last. We'll start with him first. Ben, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, I wasn't prepared for this. No, I'm, I'm happy to go first. Um, <laughs> you can find me every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash featsandfables, uh, where I am currently playing Belwyn, a dwarven princess paladin. I'm having a great time with it. Um, in addition to that, you can find me on the DM skills. I have my name on all kinds of things. Uh, and then you can also find me on Twitter, though I'm not as active there as I once was uh, with at Zentarum, PR as in public relations for an evil <laughs> faction that is long forgotten, since forgotten. 
Unless you're a DM, and then you're like, oh, here's the bad guys for this adventure. <laughs> but they're a PC faction now. Yes. Yeah. They are. Or rather, we are. And let me tell you about all the great reasons you should join the Zatarum. <laughs> Uh, and Paige, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find uh, me also on Monday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time at twitch.tv slash feats and fatals for the game that we're running there, which has been a hoot. Uh, you can also find me on the Twitters at Paige Lightman. That's spelled P-A-I-G-E-L-E-I-N. T-M-A-N. You can see the stuff that Ben and I have published on our website, which is benandpagewrite.com. Dot com. (laughs) Excellent. And also, Paige is one of the co-hosts of the Roundtable podcast, which is hosted on the Tome Show, just as this edition Wars podcast is. Uh, And Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at tribality.com. Uh, I also have a Patreon where I'm Brandis Stoddard. I write uh, my own blog at brandisstoddard.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. And I am Sam Dillon, and you can find me on rpgmusings.com, which is my blog slash website where I talk about the games that I'm running. And you can also find me on the Behind the DM Screen uh, podcast here on the Tome Show, where we talk about our games, me and Sly Flourish, Mike Shea, and uh, Jeff Greiner, the uh, founder of the Tome Show Network. And uh, you can also find me on the DMs Guild and Drive Through RPG, where I've published a couple of things. And... I on Twitter. That's I knew I was going to forget one. And on Twitter at DM Samuel. And that is the end of the episode. And so please wear your mask. Still, it is still dangerous out there. In conclusion, Black Lives Matter, Trans Lives Matter. Thank you. That's right. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo.